0: Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Keith Wallington, entrepreneur and residence at SeedCamp and Strategy Advisor
1: on aptly sequencing the scale and growth of SaaS businesses. This is the Notion
0: Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou.
1: Hi, and today I'm with Keith. Hi, Keith. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. So, Keith Wallington. Who is Keith Wallington? Tell me a bit. Keith Wallington.
0: Uh, I I suppose, uh, you know, most of my adult life, I've been involved in different types of business, mainly that that face consumption of products. So I started out uh, in the advertising industry, deeply in media strategy and in consumer behavior. And I think over time, I became more and more interested in the online business models that were emerging. But by the way, I started working before the internet. You know, we're talking about <laughs> 1990, 1991. I started working uh, when I when I graduated, and kind of by 95, 96, I started spending a lot more of my time in the ad industry and 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 outside of the ad industry in, in technology-oriented businesses. So I started consulting the businesses like Microsoft etc on in their online strategy mainly i think i've been involved in technology oriented businesses since kind of since
1: uh, i was in late teens really um, the dawn of times yeah because I'm also, i got, <laughs> i got on the internet in 94 so a lot of listeners might not understand that so <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> exactly After consulting in the 90s, did you launch one of your own projects yourself? Did you launch startups? Did you help startups getting off the ground? Yeah, I
0: I raised my first round in partnership with a co-founder in the late 90s, first VC round, for a business that helped companies. um, Basically, we built browser-based dashboards back in 1998 for companies like banks and oil refineries to run their businesses through a browser, which back then was a crazy idea. Then Microsoft launched SharePoint, which really was a great springboard for our business. So, yeah, I've raised uh, VC for my own startup. I've been involved in startups at very early stage. Uh, I've been in bigger businesses. I've done a lot of consulting work in bigger business. And I think there's a lot to be learned from being in both worlds, from spending a lot of time in early-stage businesses, but also understanding how big business works. Certainly, you can sell to them more effectively, but you can also learn from uh, some of the things that you want to replicate into smaller businesses. And maybe some of the things you want to avoid
1: in a smaller business. I think you work with the MTN group. Is that correct? Yes, I did.
0: I I consulted to MTN for five years and I helped them build their business strategy and R&D functions. And in fact, we integrated. We had extreme radio engineers sitting in amongst MBAs from INSEAD, which was really interesting and actually quite useful. And I also helped them establish an appropriate incubator model, which was um,
1: pretty successful. Nowadays, it's you know all the glory. Everybody talks about incubator models, in, especially in telcos, right? But yeah. I guess it was not something that was that prevalent back then.
0: Yeah, I think corporate venturing... As a flavor of incubation, when you talk about incubation inside a big company or sponsored by a big company, I think there's a couple of different flavors, but it certainly goes in and out of fashion, and I think it's very much coming back into fashion. You hear the terms corporate venturing and sort of corporate-backed incubators more and more. I think there's um, at least two flavors. The one flavor is big companies want to access the latest thinking in a space, and they find it difficult to do that without the help of people that know how to engage startups. So one model is a big corporate will set up an incubator or fund an incubator so that they can access early new new concepts, new services in their space, and that can be quite successful. The other model is where they think they have a whole lot of really interesting, latent capability or, or new technology in their business that they're thinking about spinning out, but they don't have the entrepreneurial skills to help those teams within their company actually convert those ideas and early technologies into businesses. And at MTN, we we did mainly the latter, but actually we ended up doing both quite successfully.
1: Is it a model that you'd still recommend? Because like you said, it's become the big flavor. Do you think it's actually a successful model at all? Can it save corporates from their downfall?
0: <laughs> it's possible. Yes, it can. But uh, I mean, it's it's tough. It can absolutely work. So I think particularly where people running the incubation model or the, or the people that are the interface between big company and little company, really understand how to create that fusion you know if if the big company wants to work with lots of startups but wants them to present themselves with all the rigor and risk mitigation and process of another big vendor that's not going to work so you've got to help the parties culturally meet each other in the middle you know the startup needs to understand that when you're selling to big brands even if you're telling them that you're in early beta or something whatever you, you, there are still certain tick boxes that need to that are just table stakes to even start having the conversation. And equally, the big the big enterprise needs to understand that if you're going to try and partner up with an early stage business, don't expect them to have a team of twelve pre-sales engineers and 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 every possible box ticked. They don't even know some of those boxes exist yet, let alone know how to tick them yet. And that's the point, right? This big company is trying to find early, early new thinking. And if you wait until they're mature and stable and, and risk-mitigated, they're no longer new. And you're not going to breathe freshness into your, into your business. Is that something you do? Do you help startups actually reach out to corporates? No. <laughs> 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 um, yes, I do, but not as a distinct function or service. I think it's just a, a natural part of what I do because of my experience and having achieved it. So if I'm working in a company, I'm actually sitting in one right now, and, and we're looking at uh, doing some work together. You know, a lot of the conversation is, you know, Do we start going after the enterprise? When do we go after the enterprise? And I can help these guys make the right decisions based on what's right for their business. Every business is different and, you, and you've got to weigh them up and you've got to figure out which business models make sense to you. But certainly, I think the days have gone of startups not being able to sell to the enterprise soon or to big business soon. You absolutely can, but you, you, it's not a bad thing to have somebody with a little bit of gray hair in the room helping you think through what the key criteria are to make that decision, but yeah, so I, I suppose I do it as by default as part of my my work with earlier businesses.
1: You mentioned just earlier that you had these kind of both the experience of working in a big business and now the experience of working also in smaller and also early stage businesses. So be, before we go on the business strategy part, the, the help you provide to startup, I want to listen to you about your experience at Mimecast. Tell us maybe what Mamcast was and your journey there.
0: Sure, um, that's it, possibly a great uh, example of how I think I can help companies. So, so when I joined Mimecast, the business had already started to be quite successful and it, was, it had good growth trajectory. And the founding team realized that they didn't have sufficient capacity to really focus on scaling the business. They were doing really well, but they realized there were probably opportunities to scale this business more securely and more quickly. One of the reasons why I think Peter and Neil, the co-founding team, wanted me to join them was because I had worked in bigger business. And that doesn't mean I was some guy that was all the answers, but I'd had enough of an understanding of early and late stage companies to consider what types of automation, what types of scale behavior, be it human or machine, is going to be useful to their business. And what I did through my six odd years at Minecraft is I went through most of the components of the business and evolved for scale through automation, process change, strategic change sometimes, and sometimes that includes saying no. Sometimes that includes saying, you know, for this business to be really successful, we're not going to go after that new geography or that type of customer. I suppose it's really just about looking at the market opportunity and making the, the right decisions and then executing on those decisions to help the business scale. What does Mimecast do? Mimecast is a is an email management service that does two things quite uniquely. First of all, so you might not be aware of this, but a lot of companies, small and large, actually have a. Quite a wide range of email related features and functionality that they need to deliver on. And in the old days, they used to buy each of those features from a different vendor, and it was probably a piece of hardware that they plugged into their overburdened network. So, what MindPass does is it provides that entire feature set from one vendor, A, and B, entirely through the cloud. So, rewind six, seven, eight years ago, it was quite a challenge pioneering a unified solution for email and via the cloud. But through, through good timing and through hard work of getting the market to adopt this way of thinking, we are now in a, in a world where the majority of companies now are buying at least one of their email management features uh, via the cloud. And for a lot of them, they're buying from Mimecast. So it's, it's the largest single player in the space now, really.
1: Did they just list it,
0: right? Yes, we listed on the IPO last week, Thursday. But you left the company. Uh, uh, yes, I left just over a year ago. We, so we listed on NASDAQ um, last week, Thursday. And uh, yeah, I mean, I spent six years in the business. I think I, you know, we went through the, the main piece of that S-curve, which is what I really enjoyed. And uh, it was time for me to do something else. I think working inside a very large listed entity isn't necessarily something I find appealing. I'd rather rewind six years and go and find the next one that needs help going through that scaling experience, either one or maybe a few, because I'm in the process of thinking about how I'm going to engage the marketplace. Do I, do I get a job? And go and find another (laughs) early stage business to scale? Or do I help multiple companies at once? And that's why I do a lot of work with um, the VC community, because typically they have portfolio companies that are potentially going to benefit from someone like me working with them. And I'm looking at building out a portfolio, a small list of companies that I work with in depth over you know, sort of a four, five year period and help them through that steep part of the
1: escove. This is why I was asking the question about that listing because that kind of shows your philosophy. You really want to be on that way up and that to try to find all the bottlenecks and actually removing them and making that company scale. You're sitting in a company right now, so is that is that your main area of help when you talk with startups, is that like Okay, we need to scale. We're not sure how, or we need to scale. We're not sure where. Uh, is that where you actually go in and say, okay, this according to my experience, you're doing right. This you're doing wrong. Is it kind of those very hard lessons you give back to startups nowadays?
0: <laughs> I don't think you can really say this is right or this is wrong without really understanding the business first. Because because as much as you know, an area like let's say B two B SaaS, which is one of the areas that I've recently spent a lot of time in, because Minecraft is a B two B SaaS business. They're all completely unique. As much as the metrics and the business model might seem very similar from the outside, they really are all very unique companies. So I certainly might have experiences that are very similar to what a company is going through, and I can talk about the scenario that I was in and how I solved that problem. But I think what's really important is to apply your mind to each situation fresh and consider the right opportunities and challenges for that company. So yeah, I I tend to... My orientation is around growth and not growth in terms of just signing up new customers, but sustainable long-term growth for a business. So you can sign them up, but do we, does the rest of the life cycle for that customer make sense? In other words, are they gonna really see return quickly? Is it an easy and um, well thought through process that they go through to actually start using your service? Do we know what we want them to be using first to make sure that they see value very rapidly? Is it easy for them to get what they need from the service? Hence, will they hang around? Will they buy more? will they tell their friends? And there's a series of metrics that are now quite mature, certainly in the SAS, but pretty much all online businesses that we can string together into a sequence that really shows us the whole animal, the whole life cycle in a quantitative way. So what I tend to do is very quickly work with a team to define what that journey looks like or what that life cycle looks like. And we map the right metrics to, to that life cycle so that we can then use that as a diagnostic tool. And you used the term uh, bottlenecks uh, a minute ago, which is Absolutely one of the terms that I use a lot because typically you're looking at blasting the bottlenecks through as you pass down the life cycle. Sometimes you need to prepare in advance. You know, there's no point in spinning up a huge amount of sales pipeline if you have no way of knowing how you're going to onboard those customers. That's an obvious and somewhat basic example, but so so it's really about balancing each piece of that life cycle of that supply chain all the way down the customer journey. So that you can scale the business as a whole entity on a stable basis as fast as possible, but without unnecessary risk or uh, sort of wild experiment. And that's what I tend to do from marketing right through sales, service delivery, technology, etc. But ultimately, yeah, my interest is in scaling businesses. It's a, it's a passion. It's
1: a hobby. I also am a big believer in kind of whiteboarding this entire thing, like to like lay down somewhere and say, okay, this is what we do and how we do it, and all the dynamics and the mechanics behind it. Do you see that they've done it already, or is it a job that usually they learn with you?
0: Both. What What does amaze me, uh, having spent the last year with dozens and dozens of companies from very early stage and right the way through to some very late stage companies since I left Minecraft. It's quite interesting that you'd think that the later stage companies had have a very, very mature understanding of their business model and they can just, you know, roll off the, the metrics for each piece of the puzzle. And you'd think that it's the early stage guys that can't do that. And frankly, I see both in both stages. I have met with some truly impressive, massive businesses that have grown like mad. And when you actually spend like a whole day with the management team, you realize that vast chunks of their machine hasn't been optimized. And without being insulting to the guys, because clearly they've done other things very well, you start working with the team on those elements and you show them that you could actually drive growth even faster than they had already been. It's pretty exciting. But generally, I think most founding teams and and, and some senior management or executive teams, be it a company of four people or a company of 400 people, they have an understanding of what each of the pieces of the puzzle is. What I find very rare is that they've organize those pieces of the puzzle into an appropriate sequential understanding. Because, you know, you hear these terms, you hear the metrics, they roll off everybody's tongue. What's at least as important as actually knowing that the metric exists is organizing the right metrics in the right sequence to understand where those bottlenecks exist and to understand the whole being. It's like a patient lying on a hospital bed. You know, you can, to get a good understanding of what's happening with your heart, you actually have to place probes all over your body, including your ankles, not just around your heart. And I think too many companies might just look at the heart and not understand what's happening in the feet, to use a
1: rather strange uh, analogy. Besides, a follow up question, besides the different pieces of the puzzle, our entrepreneurs, founders, teams also sometimes focus on the wrong metrics, or because there may be vanity metrics, or maybe because they have no understanding that another metric could be applied to that stage they're in. Yes,
0: absolutely. and. And again, I think it's often, it's not an indictment on the team. I think one of the, one of the sort of founders traps is these, these guys and girls are running so hard, often having to do multiple jobs. They don't necessarily give themselves the time to step back and look for the, look at the wood and and really see what's going on versus, you know, being in amongst the trees all day. And so quite often I do. I'll give you an example without mentioning companies' names, obviously. Last week I had a remarkable session with a fairly early stage company. They're two years old and they're doing really, really good things in the travel space. And they felt that their conversion rate from inquiries to bookings was pretty good. And actually, on an industry benchmark, it was pretty good. But when you start getting into asking questions around why there's leakage, why why are so many people requesting information or or, or putting in a a request for a proposal and not ultimately making the booking, you realize there's almost complete lack of analysis going on. And when we started digging into it, we said, hold on a second. Your business model has the potential to produce stellar conversion rates in this space. What are we going to do? And we established three areas we want to put probes in and start analyzing what's going on here. I suspect what's happening is their their service is being used far more as a search engine than a booking engine. Because they've organized their specialist vertical travel sort of category so well, lots of people are coming there to search because that's what we do for travel, right? We go to the web and we search. But then you might end up buying or booking directly with the, the supplier. And a lot of what we need to do is analyze what's happening post-inquiry, post-search, and then adapt their business model to providing the right types of experiences that would have people wanting to book with them rather than directly with the supplier. By the way, there's no price difference. So it's not like it's priced. So yes, very often there's, there are these blind spots, multiple blind spots. Also, one of the classic ones in the SaaS model is a not a full appreciation of profitability. So they might know about cost of acquiring customers. They might know a lot about what that's costing them. They might understand where their customers are coming from. They might understand cost to serve quite well. But when they string it all together and they look at the real lifetime value of a customer, when you strip out all costs, Often there are big surprises when they realize that actually there's a huge proportion of their customer base that's losing them money and they thought they were profitable.
1: For the smaller end of the companies you work with, do you also provide advisory on how to build the team, to scale the team itself, besides scaling the metrics? Yeah. right kind of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And day one, uh, that's not something I can help with, but pretty much over over a period of a few months, it becomes the most important thing. Uh, And in fact, if you look at what the private equity and the venture capital firms do, probably more than anything else these days, depending on their specific business model, is they help get the right people on the boat, because that's the most important piece of the puzzle. And once you've got the right people in, you can then provide additional support around key strategic pieces to fast track them on something that maybe they haven't done before. So yes, early stage and very late stage companies, I found myself helping a lot with organizational issues. Sometimes the right people are in the team, but the leadership, for example, the CEO isn't aware that there's an unproductive dynamic. And for example, it's often between marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. And through changing the way the business strategy works and how those two teams are challenged, you can significantly improve results. So often the right people are in the team, but it's really about getting the operating model of the business to work
1: effectively. With with all that in mind, uh, your strategic advisory can also probably be applied for funding. Do you also help these startups decide how much, when they should fund themselves? Yeah, I do. And
0: I think it's just a natural part of looking at those bottlenecks and understanding the market opportunity and which bottlenecks need to be blasted out you know, as a priority. Uh, the bottom line is whether the business is self-sustaining or not from a cash point of view, there is still a requirement to talk about funding. Sometimes it's about saying, well, there's a huge market opportunity. And without sounding too frothy and talk about land grabs, it kind of makes sense that, you know, maybe the conditions are right to take funding because you're in a very fundable position, because uh, there are people that are showing interest. Let's take the money. Or indeed, sometimes it's because when you really show them the true underlying profitability picture of their existing customer base, Sometimes people realize that actually if they don't fund this business uh, over a given time frame, they're not going to be trading. And and often I find certainly with the earlier stage teams, they assume, particularly at the moment, that funding is easy. There's a lot of cash out there. There are a lot of people looking to invest, but the bar is constantly set higher and higher. So very often it comes down to helping them adjust their story effectively. And that's not just story, that's business model. So does your business model actually make sense? Let me help you tell that story in, in the right, credible, believable, understandable way. I'll help them get funding from the right people in the right way. But I mean, access to VC uh, money these days in terms of introductions and meetings is way easier than it was even four or five years ago. So, you know, I might know lots of VCs, but the challenge isn't meeting VCs anymore. The challenge is the right referral and having the right story when you meet them. So, but yes, I, I help with funding.
1: So uh, coming back to you, because you you said earlier that you were, should I get a job or <laughs> should I open my own? What is it for you? Because you know all this, would you consider actually doing another startup at some point? Or do you like that consulting and advisory? Because it can be very exciting and do that as well. It's very exciting to work with multiple different startups and see them grow and help them. But at the same time, sometimes it's not your own. So do you have, without revealing any of your future, do you have any feelings about it?
0: Uh, I'm happy to reveal the future. Uh, I haven't made any decisions yet. So yes, I would be interested in joining another business on a full-time executive basis and, and do another Mimecast, which has been an amazing experience. But also, I really enjoy the plurality of helping multiple companies. I enjoy the, the excitement and the just the variety of working across multiple business models at the same time. And, and it's great to be able to cross-pollinate learnings from, from each of them. I suppose, um, and, and another factor on top of that is I'm also interested in generating wealth which I don't think is a rude thing. So if I if I choose to work across multiple companies, I think a pure consulting model is not necessarily for me because uh, unless you're charging a very large amount, which very often you can't do, particularly in the early and the mid-stage companies, you, you know, you're probably covering your costs, but you're not necessarily building any asset wealth. In that context, if I do choose to work across multiple companies, I will probably do it in a model where I also have equity in those businesses, or I will do it in partnership with Venture capital or private equity players, where I benefit from the upside they see from the investment of time and effort I make in their portfolio, and those are some of the models that I'm looking at at the moment. So, and, and when I say I'm trying to avoid getting a job, or I may or may not get a job, my colleagues in the venture capital and private equity worlds remind me that their jobs are extremely hard, and they work, and they and they work very long hours. So, you know, I wouldn't want to. Just for a second, that it's an easy life to be in the venture capital world.
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. So, if anyone, a founder or even a large scale company, wants to reach you, how do they do that? Uh,
0: Well, you know, LinkedIn is probably uh, is probably the ubiquitous way of connecting with people these days. So that's a good model. Of course, the Notion guys are are, are also, you know, know me and. would be, I'm sure, happy to pass introductions on to me. Equally, they've asked me to spend some time with some of their portfolio, and they're a great bunch of guys. And of course, we we both have, we, we all have strong overlap of interest in the B2B SaaS space. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested to meet with, uh, with new companies. They, you know, not everybody needs help from Keith Wellington all the time. But what I tend to do is I invest the time in initial discussions because, as you said at the beginning, when the whiteboard is out, you pretty quickly get an understanding of where the challenges are and whether I can help or not.
1: Having listened to you now, I understand why the Notion guys reach out to you to help their SaaS businesses that they've invested in. Because I'm, I'm sure, could learn a lot from you, Keith. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the opportunity to have this chat.
1: Yeah, me too. Cheers. Bye Cheers, bye.